following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Ten years ago, I was living with my wife and four children in the United States of America. We were living there for six months. And we were living in a place called Rockville in Maryland, which is just outside of that nation's capital on the eastern seaboard of the United States of America. And while we were there, we rented a two-story house in a historic part of that town. And because it was older in this two-story house, it had a very narrow staircase, but also quite steep, something you don't see in more modern homes. So there was, you know, it was a pretty sharp incline um, on these stairs. We hadn't been there long when I heard thump, 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 thump. And we went out to the bottom of the stairs in the foyer area of this old home, and there was my teenage son sitting on his backside. He had, his feet had gone up from under him, and then he had slid his way <laughs> bounced his way all the way down the stairs. And the thing was, he'd been wearing socks, and they were a timber or highly polished wood set of stairs. So at that point, I realized this was potentially lethal for this Kiwi family coming to the United States of America. It wouldn't make a good news story. Academic son dies in tragic accident on stairs wearing socks. And so what I said was that, you know, from here on in, I can see these stairs are going to be dangerous. Let's not wear our socks on these stairs. And as you know, teenagers are only too willing to go with what their parents say on 100% of the time. So periodically, across this, the five months we were staying in this house, we would hear thump, 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 thump. <laughs> and you'd invariably go out there and it'd be this one individual you know, I told him, don't wear the socks on the stairs. But every time, over like this, and it was kind of like getting a spanking all the way down the stairs, you know what I mean? Dump, 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 dump. Well, as time went on, as winter went into spring and towards summer, this individual, this young man in my home, my family, said that he wanted a sword. Don't ask. All right, let's just leave that there. But he wanted a sword, and I was reluctant for him to get a sword. But... Since other people in the family had purchased swords while they were there, not going to say who that was, there was something of a little bit of a softening, and he said he wanted a samurai sword, and I said, well, listen, you, okay, you can have one, but as long as it's dull and it's a display sword, I don't want a, a sharp one that could cause any harm. So the sword arrives, and it wasn't dull, and it wasn't a display sword at all. It was completely the opposite to what I had asked him to purchase. Don't ask. And then, so he has a sword, and then one day after the sword had arrived, we heard this sound, thump, 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 go out to the foyer, and there is a young teenage son with a samurai sword in his hand with a bent blade. <laughs> you know, he could have decapitated himself, he could have impaled himself, and I think he realized that at the moment, that perhaps... His father did have some wisdom. Maybe not a lot, but there was some still residing there. That was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I remember when my youngest son was born. We were in Christchurch. 
The delivery suite was in a hospital on Papua Nui Road in the suburb of Merivale. It was one of those birthing suites which was at the time quite trendy and modern, and instead of being antiseptic with linoleum on the floor, there was carpet there, there was wallpaper, there was a recliner chair. It was a kind of pretty flash place, but that didn't make up for the fact that the delivery was incredibly difficult. Um, the pregnancy had been very uh, difficult for Sandra, and then when we came to the birth of this young man, he decided that he was, uh, was going to make things hard. <laughs> and so, in fact, the umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck. So when he was born, the midwife immediately cut the umbilical cord and then handed him off to another medical professional, professional to take him out to get him on oxygen as quickly as possible because he was incredibly flat incredibly flat. And as she rushed through the door, my wife who had just delivered him saw this take place. Because he was so slippery, because he was like a kind of a skinned rabbit, you know what I mean? He just slipped and slided. So she's holding this newborn, very floppy and weak uh, newborn infant. He, he starts to slide out of, her, out of her arms and heads towards the floor. And he's down like this. And she just catches him by the ankle. So Sandra sees from the bed this medical professional, she's a nurse by the way, my wife, sees this other medical professional in the doorway holding her newborn son like this. Beautiful. <laughs> hey, a happy moment in anyone's life. That was 20 years ago. 30 years ago. <laughs> this one doesn't involve my sons, but it involves myself. 30 years ago, I was in a church service. Of an evening, I'd been going to this church for three months. I wasn't a Christian. And then the minister made an altar call. Now, the funny thing about all of this is, it's 30, over 30 years ago, I remember the type of seats we were sitting on. I remember the person who was sitting next to me. In fact, I can remember after 30 years their first name. I remember the illustration that the minister used at the time during the sermon, believe it or not, related to Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket around ideas of the conscience. It was to a youth service. I remember that. I remember it was a visiting minister. And I remember that the person sitting next to me asked me, did I want to go to the front? I've been going to this church for three months. And I said, no, I wanted to go to the front, but she asked if um, she wanted me to go she wanted to come, did I want her to come with me to the front? And I said, no, but I got up out of my seat and I went to the front to this altar call and I knelt down at what they call in the Salvation Army the mercy seat or penitent form at the front of the church. And a man came up and laid his arms across my shoulders and prayed for me. I even remember that man's name. A guy called Bram Knight, an amazing saint of the Lord, who's now gone into glory. And I remember that he led me in a prayer, and I gave my heart to Jesus in a sinner's prayer, and I asked for God's forgiveness, and my life was never the same after that. Ten years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and I remember. Well, a week ago, we looked at the historicity of Jesus. Did Jesus exist? And we found that all academics in the field were certain of his existence because of the evidence. We looked at the evidence. They knew that he was a real, they know he's a real person in history because the evidence points to this being the case. What we're going to do today and next week is we're going to explore the most important evidence we have for the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. 
we are going to look at these primary source documents, these ancient biographies or classical biographies known to you and I as the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These historical documents are full of information, primary source documents about the life and teaching of Jesus, which should raise this question then. If that's what we base a lot of what we know about Jesus upon, in fact, nearly all of what we know, we should be asking how reliable are they? How trustworthy are they? Are they of any use to us in telling us anything about the real historical Jesus now that we know that he exists? And we're going to do this by asking, are they trustworthy biographies? And to what extent are they based on eyewitness accounts? To what extent are they based on eyewitness accounts? Now, here are our Gospels and our timeline. We've got Jesus living between somewhere between 6 BC and AD 30 or 33. We have the Gospels written roughly in these periods. We've got Mark starting in 50, John going up towards the end of the first century. Now, we're going to do just a little bit of looking at the past as to how historians have looked at these Gospels. And then we're going to see how the whole study of New Testament Gospels has been radically changed in the last 15 years. You've probably been blissfully unaware of this, but we're going to see an amazing change, and it's its emphasis on eyewitness accounts. You see, the dominant view and way of looking at the Gospels for the last 100 years has been something called form criticism, established by German scholars. Now, this argues that although there were originally eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus, that the stories that they had became disattached to those eyewitnesses, and that those stories were then picked up by Christian communities who transmitted them to other Christian communities over time. So the stories themselves are largely anonymous as to where the gospel writers got them from, but that they were then transmitted. And a lot of these scholars, there are two ways to look at this. The first is to emphasize the creativity of these Christian communities in shaping these stories to suit themselves. Now, this means that many people felt, if you're particularly a liberal scholar, that the Gospels were unreliable. Why? Because these Christian communities got these stories and they said, we've got this situation here, so let's change the story to suit ourselves. Moreover, these scholars stated that this anonymous community and these traditions were such, over such a lengthy period of time that it allowed maybe corruptions or additions to take place. Now, some of you at some point in your life would have played a game in which you're in a group of people and you get one person is told a statement and then it's passed on to the next person, 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 by which time it's been completely corrupted and the original statement has been completely destroyed. For example, let's look at this very truthful, accurate, and unbiased statement. Adam is amazing. Adam is amazing. Now, if we had about 20 people in a circle, by the time it gets to the end, it would go from Adam is amazing to Madam is crazy. Madam is crazy. Some of you may feel that is a more truthful statement about me. In some countries, it's called broken telephone. Some countries, it's called Russian scandal. Some countries call it Chinese whispers. In New Zealand, we just call it politics, <laughs> particularly of the last week. You know, one person says this, another person says this. By the time the story comes out, no one really knows what was said. Given all this, 
It's not surprising that some of these scholars, you probably never thought about why these people think this way, but I'm explaining it to you now. They felt it was their job to strip away the bits that had been added, the creative material, sift out corruptions to get to what they called was the historical Jesus. Other scholars took a different view. This is the view of most evangelical Christians, including myself and other people. It's the view that, yes, the stories were handed down by communities, but these communities faithfully maintained the stories and the integrity of the original eyewitnesses. We might know where they came from, but as time passed and they were written down, the importance that the Jewish people placed on oral tradition means that there is an emphasis on faithfulness and accuracy in the transmission of the story. And therefore, the Gospels could be relied upon as reasonable or accurate representations of what Jesus said and did. Can you see these two different positions? But it's the same theoretical model. We don't really know who the sources are because the stories have been disattached from the people like Peter or Mary Magdalene or Thomas. And now, but it's been faithfully uh, retained over those communities. Well, Christians, of course, gravitated this for, um, for good reasons. And there are other additional reasons why they gravitated to it as well, because, let's face it, if God um, was so concerned about us to send his only begotten son, then I think it's a pretty simple matter for God to protect the integrity of those stories, despite the intervening passing of years. That's a very small matter for him to do. That, however, though, as, as good as all that is, we've seen a paradigm shift in the last decade or so that's challenged the idea of the anonymity of those stories. In other words, scholars today working in New Testament studies believe that they can take many of the stories that appear in the New Testament Gospels and they can place them with a name of where the story came from. And on top of that, Get rid of this whole idea of community, 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 and finally it gets written down. What if the Gospels were written down by people who were, in fact, an eyewitness to the events that they're writing down, or got to interview or had transmitted to them the testimony of eyewitnesses? Now, the person who's been behind all of this recent change is a guy called Richard Borkham. He's a former professor of New Testament studies at St. Andrew's University in Scotland. He currently is emeritus professor at Cambridge University. He's written 26 books and countless articles, the most significant publication of which is this book right here. I have a copy of it here, so if after church you want to have a look at it, I would thoroughly recommend it. Came out in 2006, it's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Now, scholars in the field have called this a paradigm shift in gospel studies. Others have said it's been a bomb under New Testament research. What he argues is this, quite simply. There is strong evidence for the Gospels being based on eyewitness testimony. And as a historian, I and a lot of other people find it incredibly compelling. And this is where we're heading for these next two weeks. Today, though, we need to answer three questions. First, why is an eyewitness testimony so important, Adam? Why are you emphasizing it? Why are we going to talk about it for two weeks? Secondly, given that we know that the average life expectancy of somebody in the first century is 20 to 30 years, how likely is it that the people who were eyewitnesses to these events would still be alive when the Gospels were being written down? If you think about it, the Gospels are written 20 to 60 years after the events, but we know average life expectancy is 20 to 30 years. How then would anyone be alive to actually ask, 
And where would the eyewitnesses be? I think that's a good question. And then finally, if the witnesses were still alive or the Gospels were written down, how trustworthy would their memories be after 20 to 60 years, given that most of you cannot remember what I said last week? Reuben. I mean, if we were to ask Reuben right now, would he be able to do that? He may be able to, because we put him on the spot, and his brain is just going so fast right now trying to remember. But if I put you on the spot... If I put you on the spot and I asked you, I mean, I spoke to somebody last week, in fact, this lady right here, about what I had preached here last year, and um, the, the ladies behind me remembered that it was funny, but they couldn't exactly remember what I had spoken about. Now, they may have with additional time, but given the fact that you have difficulty remembering what I spoke on last week, is it possible that these memories would actually be worth recording after 20 to 60 years? Wow. Say, Adam, are we really going to look at that? You know it. (laughs) It's too late now, baby. We've already started down this path. Let's see what we're going to find out. Well, why are eyewitnesses important then? Our very first question. You will recall, some of you, that last week I said that the work of a historian is analogous to that of a lawyer. In a court case, the stronger the evidence, the stronger the case. And as you know, having watched many films involving court cases and lawyers, which we kind of find appealing and attractive, often a case turns on the testimony of an eyewitness. It is often the pivotal piece of evidence. Why? Because it's not circumstantial. It's not guessing what's probable over what's possible. The person was there. They saw the crime being committed. Historians are exactly the same as this. We feel very strongly about um, testimony of eyewitnesses, whether it be oral or verbal or written accounts of the events people have seen. This is true for historians in the modern world, myself, as it is for historians of the classical world. You know, if you think about Josephus or Thucydides or Polybus or Josephus, all of these men believed that worthwhile history was written within the lifetime of the participants. I'll say that again. These classical historians believe that all worthwhile history was written within the lifetime of the participants. In other words, when the eyewitnesses were alive, they said it was important for understanding true history. Now, I'm a historian of the modern world. A few years ago, I published this book here. It's called Dogfight, the Battle of Britain. It would make a great gift for Christmas, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. But this book here... Shameless self-promotion. I wrote about 140 New Zealanders who flew in the Battle of Britain. Now, when I began this book, there were only four of the 140 still alive, and I got to interview three of them. Now, why was that important to me? Now, I also got eyewitness testimony from letters they'd written, diaries they'd kept, and other things. But I got to speak to three individuals. I got to speak to three individuals. These are the men who strapped themselves into a Hawker hurricane or a supermarine Spitfire and flew in defense of Britain in the Second World War. In fact, the most important aerial campaign, you could argue, of the Second World War. Why was that important to me? It's because I was getting it from the horse's mouth. (laughs) I was getting it from somebody who actually was there at the time. And that is how ancient historians or classical historians also operated. So why is it important? 
Well, because it is somebody who was there. Now, the Gospels are classical or ancient world-type biographies. They share a number of similarities with modern biographies. There are significant differences, but there are a lot of similarities as well. And we can see that the writers of the New Testament fitted in perfectly with this genre of biography in the classical world just by their own statements and what they said. Let's have a look at this. This is Peter, of course, the most prominent of the disciples and followers of Jesus. In his second letter, this is what he had to say. For we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So what is, he, what is he coming up against? He's saying, we didn't make these stories up. This is not something that's been passed down. I was there. I was there when he healed somebody. I was there when he spoke a sermon on the mount. I, was, I traveled with him. I was there. I was an eyewitness of all of this. You know, Luke's gospel is a really interesting biography about Jesus. You see, in the beginning of this book here that I wrote, I have a chapter called, in my introduction where I talk about what historians call a methodology. It's how they're going to approach the subject. Luke, 2,000 years ago, begins his biography or history of Jesus with a methodological statement of what he's going to do. And let's look at this. He says in here, insomuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of those things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses. What is he saying his book is going to contain? The eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life from people who were there. We also have a gospel that was, in fact, not just somebody interviewing witnesses or looking at their written testimonies or hearing it from somebody else who knew them very well. We have one gospel written by an eyewitness himself. It's the gospel of John. It says in there that he was an eyewitness to this. And then when he writes his first epistle, his first letter, look what he has to say about the source of all this, about where his stories came from, about these recorded sermons. In 1 John 1, he states, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. You recall the Last Supper, who leans against the chest of Jesus Christ? It's none other than John. He says that our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Modern, classical, and these biblical or biographers say eyewitness testimony is very important, and it's what their work is laid upon. Not some anonymous source handed down from community to community. It's based on people who saw something and heard something. That brings me to the next question of how do we know the witnesses were alive when the Gospels were written, given this short, average lifespan of people in the first century? If it is true that people only lived to being about 20 and 30, then there wouldn't have been many, if any, alive when the Gospels were written, perhaps for Marx, but certainly you're in trouble later. 
Well, there is in fact a trouble with this figure. It's an average. It's an average figure. And it is heavily skewed because of high infant mortality. And what it means is this, that a lot of people die before their 10th birthday. And that takes the average way down. And they died because of childbirth, which was incredibly perilous in um, the classical world and can be in the modern world, ladies and gentlemen, on occasions if you don't have a good hand to catch the ankle of that child. The impact of diseases like smallpox, frightening levels of infanticide meant children never made it to their 10th birthday. But if a child survived to their 10th birthday, they would live on average, and this changes everything, to being about 50, up to 50 or 60. So were any of the disciples infants <laughs> under 10 when they met Jesus? No. The youngest John was probably a teenager. All the others were older men. They were well beyond 10 years of age. So in actual fact, they were easily alive. It's certainly possible. And we have records of people living not just in the 50s and 60s, but we have records of people living into their 70s, 80s, and a handful living into their 90s in the classical world. So is it possible that people were alive who had seen Jesus, were there when the Gospels were written? Most definitely. By the way, we had a little creed last week um, that came from very early on. And you'll notice at the end of it, that Paul writes that there were 500 people who were witnesses to Jesus on this one occasion. And that letter was written around 50 AD. And he says, most of them are still alive today in 50 AD, around the time that Mark may have written his gospel in the 50s or 60s. So there were plenty of people. Even if John, who wrote his gospel in the 80s or 90s, would only have been in his 70s because he was, of course, the youngest of the disciples, most likely a teenager in our reckoning when Jesus began. Well, this brings us to the real big question because now we have answered some kind of ground-setting ones, why are eyewitnesses important? Then we've answered the question, would there be witnesses alive? Most definitely. Having found all of this, we now turn to the vexing question of memories. What would they be worth after 20 or 60 years between the events taking place and the composition of the Gospels? Aren't our memories prone to fading with time? Aren't they malleable and changeable and sometimes they just completely drop out of the database, gone forever? Somewhere, we just don't, <laughs> we have trouble recalling. You know, a few years ago, I was in a lecture given by a fellow academic with one of my teenage sons. I'm getting a lot of my sons into the story, aren't I, this morning? And one of my teenage sons, and he was sitting next to me in this lecture, and the lecturer was talking about Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ. The Passion of the Christ. And he said this to the students in there. He said, given the poorness of our memory or the fallibility of our memory, it's possible that the stories that are represented in the film that come from the Gospels are not very reliable. In fact, that the Gospels might be doubtful in places because people like you and I have poor memories. And by way of illustration, he said something like this. How many of you can remember what you had for breakfast last week, last month? 
How many of you can remember what you had for breakfast last? I see a hand there. <laughs> what you had for breakfast last month? It might be a person who always has exactly the same thing every day. Consistency, consistency. Well, I'm not one of those people, so I definitely couldn't tell you. It changes every now and then. I certainly couldn't guarantee what it was a month ago. Then by implication, how could you remember something that took place 20 to 60 years ago? Now, this seemed like a clincher. I mean, as an academic, I'm sitting there listening to this, and in a way, as a historian, I was fuming. I thought, this is ridiculous, this type of argument. But you can see how plausible it is. In other words, if that's true, then there's nothing reliable, ladies and gentlemen. You might as well forget it all because you can't trust it. And I got in the car and I was driving home and I had my teenage son next to me and I thought I'd just ask him a question. I said, what did you think about what was being spoken about in the lecture? And what did he think about the claim that people are unable to recall past events faithfully? And this is what my teenage son, probably 16 years of age, said. It depends on the event. It depends on the event. <laughs> yeah, good boy. Yeah. It depends on the event. Your breakfast would have to be pretty outstanding. Your breakfast would have to be pretty amazing. You'd have to have dan- people dancing, fire, earthquakes, a plane landing on your suburb, perhaps to ruin your breakfast for you to remember what your breakfast was. Most breakfasts are not the most stupendous, amazing things in the world that you rave about for years and you take, some of you do take photographs and you put them on Facebook. Stop doing that. It all depends on what it is. In other words, some events are more memorable than others. Guess what? In science, the cognitive psychologists agree with my son. The cognitive psychologists agree with my son. Cognitive psychology highlights two features that are shown to facilitate reliable remembering of past events. Firstly, the events need to be, that are easily remembered and faithfully remembered will have one or more of the following features. They will be unusual or and or consequential, you should jot these down, unusual and or consequential and or emotional, and or emotional. What does this mean? Unusual, consequential, and emotional events are more easily and more faithfully remembered than others. I want to tell you the story about a good family friends we have, and I'm going to talk to you about the mother and her six-year-old son in a Facebook uh, posting she did just a couple of years ago, and I've I've got it here in front of me, but I want to give you a bit of a backdrop. This six-year-old son became quite ill and ended up in hospital. I was an elder in the church at that stage, so I went and visited them at least twice in the hospital. And this young man was not in a good way, and this is what she wrote in her Facebook post. I'm just going to read it to you now, and I want you to listen to the dates and think about this and whether this is unusual, consequential, or emotional. This is what she wrote in her Facebook posting. So today marks eight years since I refused to listen to more than a dozen doctors who told me that the pain in my precious wee six-year-old boy's head was normal 
and that it would go away on its own. We were about to be discharged after 24 hours of tests and observations, told to take Elijah home, to just rest and to sleep it off. I knew that there was something that they were missing. I had asked and had been refused to brain scan a number of times during the night. I prayed and asked God to turn up, and he did. A new doctor walked into the discharge us, and gave, I gave my final plea, and thankfully he agreed to give Elijah, her son, a, CAT, a CT scan. To cut a long story shorter, we discovered Elijah had a brain bleed, which had grown so large that it had pushed his central lobes over more than 12 millimeters. Now, if you're a medical professional, you know that's a lot for an adult. I was in a, I actually retold the story in another church setting where there was a transplant surgeon. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, Adam, in an adult, 12, 12 millimeters is huge, let alone in a six-year-old son, six-year-old child. We were rushed to Starship Hospital, and Elijah had a craniotomy later that day. The surgeon later told us that when he first saw Elijah's scan, it was bad. And in these situations, he normally tells family to prepare to say goodbye. And when he arrived, he was surprised at Elijah, that he was still able to walk and talk. He shouldn't have been able to do any of those things given his condition. He told us that without surgery, Elijah would only have lived a few more hours, and it was a miracle Elijah survived the brain bleed. We faced the possibility of blindness and epilepsy because of the area um, on the brain in which they would operate. Today, and you can see the picture of Elijah on the bottom um, right-hand side here today. Today, Elijah and his sister are wrapping up a two-week tour of New Zealand with Revolution Tour 2K15. Elijah is the youngest on tour at only 14 years of age. By nature, he doesn't waste time or opportunities. As I reflected on this anniversary, I'm grateful to Jesus for Elijah's life that is having a positive effect on the lives of so many other young people in our nation while on tour. I know that everything we have, material or otherwise, comes from God, and I am so thankful. And then she puts four hashtags at the bottom of her Facebook posting. Hashtag Mother's Instinct. Hashtag Holy Spirit. Hashtag Miracle Anniversary. Hashtag Bragging on God. My guess is this, if you were to ask Elizabeth what she had for breakfast a month ago, she could not tell you, but at the drop of a hat, she could recall the story of the day she prayed to God and he answered her prayer and saved her son's life through the skillful hands of a surgeon. Why? Unusual, consequential, emotional. Do you think the three years of Jesus' life on this earth were less unusual, less consequential, or less emotional than this story or the stories I started today's sermon with or any other stories you may have from your life? I don't think so. <laughs> In fact, I think the disciples were called from the, from the moment they were called from their fishing nets, they began a whirlwind three years unparalleled in human experience. The man they met revealed the secrets of their hearts and their thoughts. 
He preached a radical holiness that they'd never heard before. He overturned religious traditions and challenged their perceptions about themselves and God. He said that he could forgive their sins. That he could promise them eternal life. Along the way, he performed great wonders and bewildered some and angered others. Many of his own family rejected him. The authorities spurned him. The common folks flocked to him. Blind people received their sight. Deaf people were able to hear. The lame were able to run. Imagine, ladies and gentlemen, being transported 2,000 years ago to an auditorium much smaller than this. And you've heard that an itinerant apocalyptic preacher is coming to town, someone called Jesus from a small, know-nothing town called Nazareth. And you crowd in there. It's so packed that there are no seats and you're all standing and there are people outside who can't get in and you're all pressed in close to this preacher. And as you're listening to him, something hits you on the head. And you look up. And you can see a little bit of sunlight coming through the ceiling where it shouldn't be. And then a hand starts moving away the roof. And they start grabbing bits of it and clearing it off. And bits of it land on top of you. And then before you know it, there's a man being lowered into the auditorium in amongst you. He's a paralytic. And this preacher prays for him. And he gets up and he walks do you mean to tell me you could ever forget that? Ladies and gentlemen, I have to do something very radical this morning to make this sermon and this hour we had together as memorable as that. And I'm not prepared to do anything that might uh, reach that kind of level. Certainly not in the flesh. The paralytic. And then when it all came to an end, the preacher who had called them was falsely charged, cruelly executed. They abandoned all hope. And then three days later, marvel upon marvel, miracle upon miracles, he was alive. He came to them. He comforted them. He had compassion on them, and he commissioned them. Listen, you could live a thousand lifetimes and never experience what those men did across three years. I'll say that again. You could live a thousand lifetimes and never experience what those men and his followers did across three years. Do you think they would forget a single moment of that, of this radical roller coaster ride in history? Wow, I don't think so. The second thing that makes memory stick, according to cognitive psychologists, are events that are Easy to remember are ones that are frequently rehearsed and retold. Frequently rehearsed and retold. If you saw an event that was unusual, consequential, or struck you emotionally, there's a good chance you've told one person. Maybe a number of people. Maybe it's a family story you've retold and retold every Christmas so that your kids roll their eyes every time they hear it. Why do I remember the events of my son's why do I remember my conversion? Because it was unusual, it was consequential, and it was emotional. That was 30 years ago. Why do I remember 20 years ago, my eldest son's close call um, when he was um, with a samurai sword? For those same reasons. Or the birth of my son in Christchurch, unusual, consequential, potentially very emotional, 
I've told those stories, all of those stories, on many occasions. They fit, those, fit the category perfectly, and you'll have those sorts of memories as well. There's no doubt in my mind that the people who, that people constantly pestered the disciples and people like Mary Magdalene. They pestered Peter, James, John, Thomas, Mary Magdalene about their experiences with Jesus the entire lifetime that they lived after Jesus left. I do not think for a moment that a week went by that somebody didn't ask them to tell a story or they didn't recount it, or that they didn't sit together, some of them, and talk about what they'd experienced over those three years, replaying in their own mind the events and the things Jesus said and spoke them to receptive audiences. Consequently, there's every reason to believe that the disciples' memories of past events, regardless of the intervening decades, were well remembered by the time they were written down in the Gospels, even if it was decades after the event. But there is one more. There is one more. Because you're all Christians here today. There is one faith-based piece of evidence that the disciples remembered these stories so that they could be recorded down in the Gospels. How can we be sure that the disciples and the wider group of followers faithfully remembered the events and the words of Jesus' life? Well, for Christians, there is this added belief. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads and listen to the words of John's Gospel, the 14th chapter, the 26th verse, and listen to this promise. Jesus made this promise, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things I said to you and bring to your remembrance all the things I said to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the faithful testimony of your word and these magnificent gospels that tell us about your life. Lord, without it, we have no eternal life. We have no hope. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the truth of your word in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.